What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. The kids on Elm Street don't know it yet, but something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? Halloween's a Freddy Krueger podcast. Was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. From the Consequence Podcast Network, the minds behind the Losers Club comes a new podcast in fantasy terror. Nancy, there's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Halloween's a Freddy Krueger podcast. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome back to Filmography, a Consequence Podcast Network production. I'm Dominic Suzanne Mayer. I'm the film editor at Consequence of Sound and also the host of this particular program. And I'd like to introduce my guests for this week for our second episode on the films of Tim Burton. I'm Caroline Sita. I am a film and TV critic at Consequence of Sound, the AV Club, and elsewhere. <laughs> I'm Allison Shoemaker. I'm a film and TV critic at Consequence of Sound, the AV Club, and elsewhere. <laughs> we're doppelgangers. As always, you can check the show out on Spotify, on Apple, on Podchaser, and wherever else you find your podcasts. We'd also like to thank Sadie and the Stark for their song Apocalypse, which is the theme of our entire Tim Burton season. You can check out more of their recordings at SoundCloud slash Sadie and the Stark. And as I mentioned, for the second week of the show, we're going to be talking all things adult Burton. We're going to be talking about the more mature end of the filmmaker's work, whether emotionally, whether stylistically, whether because it's spurting fountains of blood concerned. We're going to hit on all of those territories before we're done here today. But in opening up today's discussion, what I wanted to put to the two of you to start off is how do you see Tim Burton's adult work as reflective or different from the rest of his body of work? Hmm, what an interesting question. I really like all four of these movies, and I think that's something, because some of his other filmography is sort of a mixed bag. So, like, these, I would say, maybe not his four best, but, like, a cut above a lot of them. But I don't know if I would have drawn a huge distinction between these four in particular and other elements of his filmography. Like, I think certainly Sweeney Todd is very gothic, which you can draw connections to. Plenty of his other work. Um, And then there's sort of, like, 
we can get into this more, but like I feel like Big Fish and Ed Wood actually are like very sweet movies. And they're sort of like, there's like his <laughs> cynical movies and his sweet movies of which like I would consider Dumbo a sweet movie. Maybe even a weird way like Alice to be a sweet movie. So I think that there's so many different ways to sort of subdivide his filmography and adults in an interesting way, but I wouldn't say it's the only way. I guess for me, these four seem to be characterized by, ooh, for lack of a better term, intellectual ambition. Like it feels like Burton coming from a place where he's interested in exploring ideas and delving into characters. I think in some cases that's successful, in some cases it's less successful. I would never say that he always uh, hits the bullseye when he makes that attempt, and it's it's not exclusive to these four movies either, but these might be the biggest four examples. Um, and I always appreciate when a filmmaker goes for it in a way that is maybe not always their strength. Um, yeah, you know, for all the things that are wonderful about Edward Scissorhands, and there are lots and lots of wonderful things, um, it's pretty simple. It's a pretty, I mean, it's Beauty and the Beast. It's the story of Beauty and the Beast, um, you know, in some ways. But uh, here I think he's at least attempting to tangle with bigger themes and ideas, and obviously some of these films are quite personal, and I think that that's important too. Um, and then also, yeah, The Fountains of Blood. Well, and granted, The Fountains of Blood are from only one of these four movies, and I feel like I need to specify that up front just for those <laughs> listening at home. You know, there there isn't a lot of true grotesquery in Burton's filmography for all of, you know, the severed heads and the unsettling creatures and all of that. Um, one of the films we'll talk about today will is um, probably the most grotesque thing he's ever done. But what's interesting is within this crop, Caroline, to your point, there are also a couple of movies that, if anything, feel like outliers because they're some of the most delicate work he's yeah. ever done. And there's always kind of a delicacy, too, to the way in which Burton presents even some of his really fanciful material. But he, I, with a film like... so. To clue in the listener at this time, we're going to be discussing 1994's Ed Wood, 2003's Big Fish, 2007's Sweeney Todd the Demon Barber of Fleet Street, and 2014's Big Eyes. And not only do you get a pretty interesting time gap between each one in that respect, because we're essentially traversing every phase of Burton's career in a way most of the other episodes of this show aren't going to be able to do, but you also get a look at how his interests have changed, and especially when it comes to these ideas of artistic prerogative and pers like personal drive that come up in all of these stories. You see that shift over time in some interesting ways. I agree. I feel like that this time period is also peppered with films that I would um, characterize, at least in part, as um, maybe craven cash grabs. Might be a word that I would use, uh, or where at least Burton is spending a lot of money, making a lot of money, and creating something that feels, even if it's visually dazzling, feels pretty hollow. Um, I think that that is true of a lot of his more recent films, and you can't really say that about any of these. There are nits to pick, and I'm sure that we will pick them, and... Um, with the exception of the first film we're going to talk about, I, you know, certainly have my qualms with all, but you can't say that they're coming from a place of like, well, I'm going to phone this in. They don't, it's not that it's not Burton in that mode. It's definitely him putting in the work and making something um, that takes a lot of 
intellectual and um, emotional rigor. It's interesting to see like what he's drawn to. Like I, I don't know. I always feel well, on the walk over here. I was thinking that like if you just just were to say Tim Burton and like what movie do I associate with him? It would be Edward Scissorhands for sure. Yeah, which I feel like is maybe his most like fully original film and then a lot of what he's doing is like different forms of adaptation like I think we tend to think of more recently like oh he's doing Alice he's doing Charlie and the Chocolate Factory but really like I mean he started with Batman like he started adapting right away and Ed Wood obviously is based on a real person as his big eyes and then Big Fish is based on a book and Sweeney Todd is based on an existing musical so all of these are in some way like an adaptation which I guess a lot of his career is, even though he is so original as an auteur as well. And you bring up a really interesting point there, because we sort of touched on this last week. For as much as we consider Tim Burton kind of a left-of-center filmmaker in a lot of respects, he's worked within the studio system his entire career. His debut film was Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It's not like there was a period at which Burton was some slept-on indie auteur of a fashion. And yet, like... If we're talking about the tourist approach he takes to some of these ideas, yeah, he's finding new ways to adapt that feel like it's Tim Burton's mm-hmm. adaptation, which I think is really key in some respects. It's fascinating how well-known he is, I think, just even to, like, people that don't really follow film. Like, I think he's one of those directors that people can easily identify, and if you're like, oh, it's... Like, I think I was talking to someone that, like, didn't know anything about Dumbo, and I was like, oh, but it's Tim Burton, and, like, somehow that name carries a weight that I think a lot of other, like he's really entered the mainstream in that way, which is like a feat, you know, for better or for worse, that's a feat in its own way. Yeah, it's interesting because Burton spent a lot of his career essentially attempting to make outsider art from an insider position, which is, there's a lot of, there's a really interesting tension there um, because he is obviously not a not above making something that is intended um, to be absolutely devoured by as many people as possible uh, without necessarily attempting to, like, push buttons. I think visually always attempting to push buttons. He's always doing something weird. He's an extremely accomplished visual artist. But, um, I mean, you think about the filmmakers that if you asked me, like, who are the big influences on him? I would say people like John Waters, right? Mm -hmm. John Waters (laughs) is not making any of these movies, you know? Like, John Waters had hits, but not Tim Burton hits. Um, And I think that's really interesting. And I think that lens is particularly interesting when you think about Ed Wood. Well, and if you, even if you take Vincent Price as sort of the Rosetta Stone for Burton's own career, down to the invocations of him in Edward Scissorhands itself, in his fascination with Ed Wood, who was another cult filmmaker from that same era, he's fascinated by a time when auteur had a genuine weight to it without a hint of sarcasm, but he was also doing alternate auteur criticism on a broad level at a time when, like, it wasn't part of the national dialogue yet. He was sitting there arguing for the artistic validity of Price and of Hammer Horror movies and of Ed Wood, as we'll get to in a second. And Margaret Keene. And Margaret Keene. And he's done this throughout his career in a way that allows for him to, in some ways, function as a gatekeeper, but also put these stories out to people on, again, this much broader canvas. And I actually think that's a good way of jumping right into our first topic of discussion for today, which is 1994's Ed Wood. Mr. Lugosi, why are you buying a car? I'm planning on dying soon. No, 
Yes, and I'm working on another bus and truck tour of Dracula, 12 cities in 10 days, if that's conceivable. Do you know that I saw you perform Dracula in Poughkeepsie in 1938? That was a terrible production. Ranfield was a drunk. I thought it was great. You know, you're, you're much scarier in real life than you are in the movie. Thank you. Because in this film, you have him directly taking on the story of somebody who would have been, well, it's very interesting because, Allison, to your point about outsider art and an insider from an insider position, Ed, Tim Burton making an Ed Wood movie after the massive successes of two Batman films and Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands is almost kind of hilarious in a way because he was the only, one of the only people who could have probably gotten this movie made while also simultaneously being way bigger than Wood, who is a figure he clearly empathizes with. Yeah, it's, um, I think Ed Wood and Big Eyes are interesting in conversation together as mm -hmm. portraits of artists who Burton clearly believes were undervalued and misunderstood. Um, and they're, in, they're very, very different movies, obviously mm -hmm. exploring lots of different issues. They were coming from completely different places. But I think that that is a, um, a really interesting lens to take to these two films in particular. And um, I'm really glad he got this one made because it's amazing. Yeah, I really, really like Ed Wood. It's, and again, I said this before, but like, it's so sweet. Like, that's my dominant feeling when mm -hmm. I come away from it is like, this is just a story about a really sweet friendship and like this little group of misfits that just love and support each other. Like, I don't think it is interested at all in really being like a historically accurate biopic. And I think that's fine. Like, it's so mm -hmm. clearly, it's so clear from the beginning, like what it is, like this loving homage sort of filmed in the style of this era that's very hyper realistic but then very like emotionally grounded and it's just like it's just lovely it's just like a little warm blanket about little weirdos that just like wraps you up and it's so yeah nice. i think that's a great point i i don't think burton's attempts at sweetness always land mm -hmm. super well um but this one absolutely does. I feel like this and Edward, the Ed movies, this and Edward yeah. Scissorhands are the sort of purest. Well, don't forget Big Fish. It's a sneak or, sneaky Edward movie. And oh, I that's true. get the sense that that one might not totally work for you. Not, not my favorite. Um, we'll get there. Uh, but the titular Edward movies. The, titular, the eponymous right. Edward movies. Yes. Um, the alphabetical on the blockbuster shelf. Edward movies. Yeah. Anyway, um, I think that Edward Scissorhands and Ed Wood are both very interesting in that they're stories that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be told with a ton of sweetness, and maybe that is what mm -hmm. makes it so effective because they're so gentle and compassionate. So gentle. And uh, I think that that is really great. And then you take something like, what's a good example? Um, like Alice, mm -hmm. which you would hope would be kind of sweet. Yeah. And it, you know, isn't, isn't, Weird. I don't, spoilers. Have you, have y'all <laughs> talked about that one yet? We haven't touched on Alice okay. yet. No, um, I, I do not expect that the conversation will be, wow, isn't this a sweet movie? <laughs> I, it will not. Spoilers. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Isn't this a sweet movie? No, no, it's not. <laughs> spoilers for those of you listening at home. Um, no, no, that will not be the tone of discussion. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very interesting, too, because to the point of sweetness, Edward is coming out at a point when the movies about movies are starting to get really fanged. This is a period when industry stories are being told through things like Robert Altman's The Player, through Quiz Show, these extremely bitter takes on working in entertainment and how it is a system that will chew you up and spit you out. And Edward has 
those ideas in the periphery. Mm -hmm. But what's really interesting is how against the unflappability of Ed Wood as a character, they're irrelevant. And and I think that ethic extends to the film at large in a really interesting way too, because whether it's his sexuality, whether it's his relationships with his actors, it's not as though there aren't these moments of gravity. This is one of the only R-rated films that Burton has ever put out to this day. But that gravity feels secondary because these things, like whether it's Bela Lugosi going to rehab or his Dolores leaving him, it feels like you're viewing it the way Ed would view it in a lot of respects, where he is taking this very gentle approach to it. Like, well, okay, something to push through. Question. It's a brief sidebar, but I just got interested and, like, did some Googling. Well, I'm just curious. What's your favorite movie about making movies? There are, so, there are a zillion. That is hard. I And I, I just mentioned it a second ago. I think it's The Player, which is a very angry movie. That's a very angry movie. What about you? I don't know if I have an answer. Got to think about it more. What are some, I can't even think of any. Uh, I found this den of geek list, um, which I as as with many lists, I started skimming it and was immediately like, no. <laughs> um, some of the things on their list: the dirties, uh, get shorty, me and Earl and the dying girl, the life aquatic with Steve Zissou. There's the player. I know some of these. I'm like, oh, this is a stretch. Adaptation, which I. Yes and no, and um, the artist obviously that sure. is saving Mr. Banks very on sure. the nose, clocking in at number seventeen. Hail Caesar, uh-huh. Tropic Thunder, The Bad and the Beautiful, State in Maine. This is a strange oh, list. State Cooper, Maine. State Maine Cinema Paradiso, eight and a half. Obviously, Hell's oh, our Poppin'. favorite nine. Musical adaptation of Nine that everyone loves. Everybody loves Nine. Um, Shadow of the Vampire, which is great. Bowfinger and Glorious Bastards, which calling that a movie about making movies feels like kind of a stretch to me. There's Ed Wood. Sullivan's Travels, Son of Rambo, Boogie Nights, Uh and Singing in the Rain, which would be my pick. Oh, yeah, Singing Um, in the Rain. It's hard to beat that one. I feel like there's more, too, that aren't on this list. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are lots and lots and lots. An interesting topic, yeah. And it is actually, that's something I really like about Ed Wood is just like the insight into what a film set was like in the 1950s. Is yeah. that, that's when this is set, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's just fascinating. And his his penchant for only doing one take, no matter how many things go wrong. Like it is, there is something really fun about watching a movie where within the movie there are cameras and a set and lights and like that behind the scenes access. It's like, I understand why people return to this you know, genre of movies about movies a lot because it is really fun to watch, especially when it's a different era and you're getting insight into that kind of stuff too. Well, and it's really interesting too because it it takes the idea of the different era and it sort of removes that disconnect in a lot of respects. There's something that feels very active about Mm -hmm. a lot of Ed Mm -hmm. Wood, you know, like it... It feels like it, it didn't take place that long ago. It gives it that universal quality of being able to plausibly have taken place at any time. Because in a lot of respects, yeah, it could have. I mean, watching it very recently, I was moved to think of The Disaster Artist from yeah. a couple years ago, which oh, sure, yeah. desperately wanted to be Ed Wood yeah, as much it did. as anything. It really, really, did. really yep, did. Yep, yep. And there there are even some similar parallels there, but with, with Ed Wood, it's very interesting because Burton doesn't take him as a kitsch figure. Because one thing, especially when it's movies about people who didn't know how to make movies, which is even a more of an interesting subgenre yeah. within the one you outlined, Allison, 
you know, there's always this tendency to have a wink like, oh, they were kind of a hack, am I right? Edward has yeah. little flex of that, but overall, it really just treats him as an auteur with a very particular process. Yeah, it's like, it doesn't ignore the fact that he maybe wasn't always great at his job, but it doesn't, like, the th I, thinking about the disaster artist and contact in the context of Edward is actually in this moment helping me to better articulate my issues with the disaster artist than I've been able to in the what year and a half since I saw it, whenever it was. Um, but I think Edward works much better as a character study. Whereas the disaster artist is like a love letter to a movie. Everybody knows is bad. Yeah. And, and that's fine. That's fine. If that's what you want to do, but but let's not pretend that the disaster artist is a portrait of Tommy Wiseau. It's not. Whereas Ed Wood is really, he's very interested in Ed Wood, the person, and mm -hmm. not just Ed Wood and the things he makes. Yeah. If there's, I mostly really, really like Ed Wood. I, I think it's probably Burton's best film. If I have a critique of it, and I feel like this will come up a lot, I don't totally love how it uses the Sarah Jessica Parker, Dolores <laughs> character, and then the Patricia Arquette, Kathy O'Hara character, who are like the two blonde women in in ed's life that we compare and contrast first of all i just think it puts it spends for what ultimately happens with the sarah jessica parker thing which is that she like rejects ed when she finds out about his cross-dressing and is sort of like the one sort of like not nice character in the film i almost feel like we spend too much time with her like the focus needed to be if we want her as a, as like a maybe a quick villain of some kind that's fine and then give us more of patricia arquette I just felt like the balance is kind of off. And I do think the portrait of Dolores is probably the shallowest portrait in the film. In a film that I think with everyone else like locks into interesting and empathetic things about them. I just think that the way it handles that character is not the best. And I think it maybe introduces a tendency in Burton's film to be a little bit shallower with his female characters than his male ones. Well, and I think that's especially pronounced here because the f the love story in which the film is clearly most interested is the one between Ed and Bella Lugosi. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is fine, and he does that really well. Yeah. Well, and I think that part of the reason Ed Wood is so successful is that that's also the relationship I'm the most interested yeah. in, whereas there are some other films in his filmography and some in this conversation where I'm very interested in some of these other relationships and Burton doesn't seem to be. Mm -hmm. Or if he is, he's interested in the way that it looks and not what is actually going on beneath the surface. Well, and it brings up an interesting tendency in his work that we touched on in last week's episode a little bit, where Burton uses the hyperreal, as you alluded to earlier, Caroline, in the service of being able to highlight certain things. And what's interesting here is just how much of what he's highlighting are just, again, the minutia of everything in his world, whether it's the minutia of film sets, whether it's the way in which Ed, when he's at his most panicked and backed into a corner, finds solace in just nuzzling against an Angora sweater. Mm -hmm. There's He finds time for all the little, simple, observant notes. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what sets it apart as well. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that extends to the um, Bella Lugosi character as well, which Martin Lando is so great at playing, won an Oscar for. Um, yeah, and there's, so, there's such sweet and weird <laughs> details that, again, I don't think are necessarily historically accurate, but just, like, the idea of him sleeping in a coffin, and Ed's like, yeah, sure, that's, like, this is just my friend, and that's what he does, and that's fine, and, yeah, that sweetness just is so there in that core friendship between them, and it's, like, an artistic relationship, like, I think there's a really, really sweet moment where they're filming the 
like octopus attack scene in the middle of the night and freezing water and the octopus doesn't work and and Ed's just kind of like, I can't believe that you're doing this or something like that. And Bella's like, well, there's not many people I would do it for. And it's this it's interesting thing of like, he's Ed is not a talented filmmaker, but at least as presented in this movie, he's like a really good person. And that has more value than what his artistic output is. And that makes it kind of an interesting counterpoint to movies like Disaster Artist, who again, a lot of movies about movies that sort of fetishize and uphold the process of the director as like cruel dictator it's not interested in romanticizing that because one of the things it emphasizes again is just how genuinely decent ed was and how that innate decency sort of dragged other people willingly into his orbit you know i this has absolutely no basis in reality it's just a like a musing Uh if you will but in describing that relationship the Lugosi Wood relationship the thing it made me think about was Johnny Depp and any director who did right by him right like Mm. that's Johnny Depp has made a lot of bad movies because a director who did him a solid who like got him through a film that either the film was great or the performance was great um and then just they earned his loyalty and so he kept working with them pretty much no matter what they wanted to do so you're saying ed wood is a meta commentary on tim burton and johnny depp's relationship no what i'm johnny saying depp is, is playing tim burton sort of but no what i'm saying is i would not be surprised if the process of making this film and following this story um was really personal to Johnny Depp in a way that it has influenced his choices in the Mm -hmm. decades since. Well, and Burton's doing a lot of interesting stuff during this period because this is Burton at or very near the height of his powers, and he would follow this with Mars Attacks. So he spent the middle of the 90s just doing, you know, the kind of personal projects that you do when you have Tim Burton in 1993 level clout and can get anything you want made. And all you have to do is call Jack Nicholson and he says yes. So there's also that. I do think he can be a little bit, and maybe this is just true of any director, any creator, but like just a little bit reactionary and like, okay, I tried this. I think Mars Attacks is sort of beloved now, but maybe wasn't that well received. And you can kind of see him and maybe this is like how we get to Big Fish, but like I feel like you can kind of see like, okay, I tried Mars Attacks. That didn't work. Like, let's get back to like, Sleepy Hollow, that's my wheelhouse. Like, let's try this apes thing. Okay, that really didn't work. Like, now we'll go big fish. Like, this will be my savior kind of project. It's interesting to track Mm. his filmography and, like, the ups and downs of how the movies, you know, are received. Well, and that's a really interesting jump into big fish, then. Daffodils. They're your favorite flower. How did you get so many? I called everywhere in five states. I told them it was the only way to get my wife to marry me. You don't even know me. I'll have the rest of my life to find out. Because in the case of that, you know, again, you have him on the other side of this blockbuster period for the first time he's, I mean, really with Planet of the Apes two years prior, that was the first time, like Mars Attacks was divisive. Mm -hmm. Planet of the Apes was the first time Tim Burton had made a movie that like genuinely not a lot of people enjoy. That was dead last on our ranking, right? Um, Dark Shadows. Oh, okay. That's, that's fair. (laughs) (laughs) But in... But yeah, Big Fish was a return to form for him of sorts. It's interesting because, again, Burton is working on from a place of adaptation, in this case, Daniel Wallace's novel. But what's curious about Big Fish is that it it is... 
I wanted to use the word hokum on instinct, <laughs> and I feel like hokum is a pejorative, generally mm-hmm. speaking. But it's also maybe the most accurate yeah, word I can think unfair. of. He is dealing in a kind of unabashed Americana that he built his name on lampooning and sort of sending up. So it's an interesting full circle moment from Burton the Outsider Artist to Tim Burton making maybe the most broadly accessible thing he's ever turned out. Yeah, it doesn't feel like a Burton. I mean, in some ways it does feel like a Burton movie, but I don't know. It feels very different to me than anything he made before. I have an interest... I realized that I had been rewatching a lot of Burton and like I didn't quite understand to me like when Big Fish came out I feel like it was a big deal and everyone loved it and everyone saw it and it was like this huge hit and then looking back I was like actually it was like mixed critically received like I it's a movie that's hard for me to understand sort of like its legacy as a movie as a Burton movie but I agree it's very very saccharine I think it's could use some trimming but I it, like it mostly works for me I think it it has some like emotional cheats that are very, very powerful. Um, I think as in a lot of movies about difficult men, I sometimes watch them maybe in a different way than they're meant to be watched, but I still got something out of that way anyway, so that's fine. Um, but yeah, I know I know Allison is not the biggest fan of Big Fish, so I was just going to put in a little preemptive defense of <laughs> the really, really saccharine side of, of Burton. You know, I would never call Big Fish a garbage heap or anything. You sure. know, it's not like I think it's totally without merit. Um, I remember when this came out, I loved it. I uh-huh. bought the DVD when we still did that. Um, I owned it, and then I never watched it again and haven't thought about it since, in the, like, however many years since, 14, 15, 16 years, whatever it was. Um and then revisited it and sort of expected to have the bloom be a little bit off the rose, but was very, <laughs> pun not intended, Edward just Boyle. killing it. Ah, I'm rose. killing it, guys. Um, but I, uh, I I, just didn't expect for it to fall quite as short for me as it did. Um, I think saccharine is a totally fair word. Uh, I also think, you know, we're talking a lot about Burton adaptations, but Tim Burton has not that many screenwriting credits, right? Like, right, 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 yeah. Uh, I think part of the reason Scissorhands is so successful is because that story is his. It's a dream he had, right? So, and obviously we're not talking about that film here, but I do think that sometimes Tim Burton gets really lucky and finds source material to which he is uniquely suited. And there have been a lot of, like, Beetlejuice, right? Um, uniquely suited. I think he was uniquely suited to make Batman movies in a way that other directors have not been. Um, And some have, obviously. But uh, I think that when you look at something like Big Fish, it's maybe not such a good fit. Mm. Uh, And you can see themes that he explores elsewhere. Um, Certainly his interest in like lore and mythology and gothic storytelling all feel really appropriate and they're echoed here but it just feels a little bit hollow it feels a lot less authentic than any of the tall tales told Mm. by edward bloom right because those are all in the in the story the whole point is to me that 
Bloom takes these things that really happened to him and he just sort of blows them up, yeah. which we all do. And this is an extreme circumstance, but which we all do. And that's how almost all legends and fairy tales come to be, right? There's a nugget of something true inside and it grows and grows and grows and becomes something else. But there's authenticity to it. And for some reason, the stories feel way more authentic to me than the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard to put your finger on why, because I think the performances are mostly pretty good. I think that... Um, that Jessica Lange, while super underused, is actually really great in this film. I think that um, McGregor ha- is also very well cast. I don't know that there's a ton for him to do outside of Be Charming ad nauseum, but, um, you know, I-, I think it's effective. But it just does this let me put it this way this is a better way of putting it um the princess bride is just a story that a sick kid gets told right Mm -hmm. that's that's just what it is it feels 10 times more authentic than big fish does Mm -hmm. and there's no parallel like there there's not really an exploration of death or mortality in the princess bride there are undercurrents of it because you invest in it and you invest in the people you invest in the nature of love and all of that really wonderful stuff um, and here I just wasn't actually invested in any of it, but it sure did look good. Wait, well, but did you cry at the end? A big fish? Yeah. No. Allison, you're so stone cold. No, I just, I'm I like mean, weeping at the end. Even no. if you don't like the rest of the movie, that last scene has to get you. No. No. Nope. Gonna go to the water and it's his dad and he's telling the story. Oh, I get it. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think maybe, and I remember being very moved by it when I saw it in 2003 or whenever it came out, but. It just, maybe it's just that I'm older now and yeah. like have had more experiences with mortality sure. or whatever, but it just didn't ring true to me at all about did you, did marriage, about parental relationship. I mean, like I am estranged from, you know, one of my parents and um, I, I should be an easy target sure. for yeah. this movie. I should be like a hell of a mark. And it's just, it just didn't do it for me at all. It's interesting then because I sort of landed in between, which feels noncommittal, but it's the truth because like Allison, I like this movie more when I was younger. Also, in the same way, I am also estranged from a parent and admittedly movies about father-son stuff tend to land for me, particularly as one person with kind of a gut punch that they may not for everybody. But even then, I do think there is a bit of a disconnect. And if I could try to speak to that, would you think it off base to say that some of it might be that Burton very clearly knows who he empathizes with and thus kind of steers you in the same direction, whether your read of the story actually fits that or not? Like, this is a movie about teaching Billy Crudup why he should have more of a sense of wonder. Yeah. This is not a movie it's very like... manipulative in its yeah. emotions. I think I think maybe. I think that it is possible that Burton who and this is I'm not a Burton biographer. This is just Wikipedia. So who knows? Could be fake. It could just be a total fiction. Um but I was reading the Wikipedia page earlier and it it included several anecdotes about Burton grieving both of his parents Mm -hmm. who he did not have great relationships with through the process of making this movie and that it's why he wanted to make it to begin with and it is possible to just be too close to something like if that is what he connected to if he was connected to that relationship then it is totally possible that he was not able to step far enough back to actually investigate what about it was compelling that said one of my biggest problems with a lot of Burton's films is that he's not actually interested in investigating the things that are compelling right like he he's like this is really interesting 
interesting. Here you go. And it looks amazing. And that's the extent of my interaction with this idea. And I think that that is sort of what's going on here. In addition to the fact that it is very manipulative. And I don't mind being manipulated. Mm -hmm. That's fine. That's what storytelling does. Right? Which, again, is what the movie is about. Yeah. And I was going to say, we're not trying to throw manipulation around as a swear word out of hand, but there is a way to do it that feels genuine within the context Mm -hmm. of a story. And there's a way that makes you step back beyond that and go, oh, I'm being gamed here. You know? Yeah. Well... Let me put one tiny moment as an example of why I think this that this movie is kind of unsuccessful at what it's attempting to do. So it is in the interest of both the older um, Edward Bloom and Albert Finney's character and of Burton to make us believe that this love story was destined, that mm-hmm. it was always meant to be. And I love a fairy tale. I am totally willing to buy into the idea that love at first sight happens, that he goes through these three years, that he wins her over slowly, that it's meant to be and that they live happily ever after. I'm absolutely able to make that leap. I have no problem with that. I fucking love a Disney movie. But there's this fiance. She's engaged to a fiancé who he knows personally. He beats the shit out of Edward Bloom. And that's the breaking point. Yeah. All of that, again, I'm totally fine with that. He reveal, like, shows his ass, reveals himself to be an incredibly violent person, keeps beating on a guy who has obviously said he's not going to respond. That would make me dump a dude, too. And then the fiancé dies, and it's not even a thing. If you were engaged to a guy... And broke up with him. And he went and sat on the toilet and died immediately? That would be, like, at the very least, month-wrecking. Assuming you didn't actually care about him at all. But that would wreck your month. Minimum. Minimum. Am I wrong? It would wreck your month. And then instead, it's just never mentioned. It has no impact Mm -hmm. on her whatsoever. Because Burton isn't actually interested in the complexity of relationships. And I think that it's to the detriment of Big Fish because the idea that a story brushes over the complicated details, but the complicated details still exist, is fascinating. And here it's like there's a head nod to that. It's acknowledged and then never actually explored. Because it's way more interested in the stories than it is in those underlying complications by yeah, far. Yeah. Which I do think is, I will say that this movie also worked better for me when I was younger than it did on revisiting it, even though it still overall mostly worked for me. I think it's a little bit too toothless in critiquing Edward. Yes. And that's where I think the manipulation comes in. And this actually ties into like, okay, well then let's make the existing fiance the biggest jerk in the world so then we don't have to analyze Edward's flaws, which I think are numerous. And I think you see this a lot with the father-son relationship. Like, I think the movie is far more on Edward's side than I personally am, which to me, I still get a lot from, like, my own interpretation of, like, Edward is terrible, but sometimes you have to just be nice to terrible people because they're dying. (laughs) I don't think that's what the movie is trying to say, (laughs) but that's what I'm, you know, I'm still getting something from it. Um, But I think particularly, and I had, I had, when I was rewatched this most recently, I was, I was tweeting about this because I haven't read the novel myself, but there's a question that comes up as to whether Edward Bloom has an affair with Jenny, Helena Bonham Carter's character, um, that I think the movie, unless you do a lot of your own interpretation, is mostly saying didn't happen. And yes. I, appar- apparently in the book, it is much more heavily implied that they did have an affair. And I think having them have an affair is so much more interesting. Even if the movie wants to say within the context of Edward's story, it was a fairy tale romance within the context of the real world, which I think is the juxtaposition that the movie is often lacking. Okay, he did have an affair. And in that case, the the happy romance was their ability to work through that and be Absolutely. a couple. And then in the fairy tale, 
it's just, you know, the happily ever after, but there's not quite enough of that juxtaposition. And I think there's not enough interrogation. It's like, okay, well, Edward, he didn't have an affair. Therefore he's a great guy and Will should forgive him. But then the movie ignores like, I mean, when Will's introduced, he's like, I didn't know my father growing up because he was gone more than he was here. Regardless of whether the dad had an affair, that's a flaw as a parent Mm -hmm. that the movie never grapples with because then it uses this cheat code of like the love story to be like, oh, he was a good guy. So I do think that like, as much as I like Big Fish and as much as that ending really, really works for me, like I I would love it to be three times as like deep and nuanced as it is. It's also very interested in the idea of the story in a way that those... I don't want this to sound like we're just nitpicking the movie because I think there's a lot of validity to what you've both voiced that in a movie that is specifically about the power of the transcendent power of storytelling that to slight these things in favor of a more streamlined story is a major knock against a movie that is dealing in this exact yeah, material. Exactly. It, it lacks a self-awareness about not only the characters within the movie, but the actual story it's telling, right? There's a perfect parallel. If Tim Burton wanted to make a movie about how sometimes you just accept the fiction because it feels more true and because it's more special and because it doesn't diminish the truth, it enhances the truth, then that's, it's right there. Like it's right, the movie is actually about that and he doesn't, explore it at all he could the argument of the movie could be yes big fish is schlock who cares it's gonna make you feel wonderful and instead it's just hey these stories aren't true but it's but it's wonderful and here's a wonderful movie i think burton as a filmmaker gets too caught up in the fantasy parts of the movie and doesn't give enough depth because it is interesting like the the parts with like Billy Crudup, who I think is like is not my favorite performance, and I do like Marion Cotillard, but like the the real world stuff feels more real than like any other Burton movie ever. It's just like oh, this is just a movie, and I think that he doesn't have enough nuance in those segments, and he spends a little bit too much time on the the fairy tales. Like I'm like okay, it feels like a lot of these we could cut or shorten, or like we don't need to spend so much time with him in World War II. I would rather spend more time in the real world, like grappling with the other side of this. You know how there are people who get so rich and famous and successful and powerful that they're ultimately sort of doomed to fail because no one will ever tell them that something is a bad Mm -hmm. idea? Big Fish feels like a movie where nobody stopped to ask Tim Burton a question about what he was doing. And as a result, he made something competent and occasionally lovely as opposed to something that could be really fascinating. And it's just, uh, everybody needs a dramaturg. That's what I'll say. (laughs) Get yourself a dramaturg. Hire Caroline Sita. She's very good. I think what's interesting, too, is that I won't take quite so jaded a take on Big Fish because I do think those flights of magical realism when they do arrive are lovely enough on their own. But yes, they do lack that extra something beneath because don't get me wrong, the... Some of the direct transitions that Burton employs are some of his most interesting filmmaking. The way he, and we'll talk about this more in the back half when we get to the visual aspects, but the way he delineates the real world from the magical world in seconds, where it is, again, this very almost banal depiction of everyday life that enters this heightened reality on the drop of a hat like it's Mm -hmm. absolutely nothing. Yeah, it's I, I'm not saying that I think Big Fish is a bad movie. I personally, and I guess this is going to be a useful caveat for the other films we're going to be discussing, too. I am um, I am much more easily frustrated with a movie that's fine and could be great than a movie that's bad. 
right? Like a movie that's bad, yeah. I don't ever have to think about again. But a movie that could have been great kind of haunts you, right? And Big Fish is one of those movies that kind of haunts me in a not good way as opposed to a good way. Speaking of movies that could have been great, I feel oh like we need is to get... Is it time? Yeah, I I've need... been waiting to open my beer. I've been waiting to preface... So I'll preface this next part for the listeners at home. When I told Allison and Caroline about this season, they were both very interested in coming on and discussing Sweeney Todd specifically. And I'm going to kind of defer here because honestly, I know way less about musical theater than either of you. So tell me about Sweeney Todd, friends. Give me just a second. <laughs> All right, you, sir, have about a shot. Come and visit your good friend Sweeney. You, sir, too, sir. Welcome to the grave. I will have vengeance. I will have salvation. Who, sir? No one's in the chair. Come on, come on. Sweeney's waiting. I want you, bleeders. You, sir. Caroline and I differ on this one. We do. Well, I was going to say, as you you can take a sip of your beer while I explain, we, we all, the three of us, shared a lift in which we had a very in-depth conversation about Sweeney Todd that I think very much confused our poor driver because we yes. were just going in on the nuances of this. This... I could be on a whole three-hour podcast just about Sweeney yeah, Todd, and yeah. so I will cut and just down for about now, but... just about this version of Sweeney Todd, um, to say nothing of the many other versions and like the cultural impact that it's had on American music theater and all kinds of other things. Like just just this version of Sweeney Todd, we could go super long. Yeah. Um. So the basic setup: very famous Stephen Sondheim musical, one of like. It is a weird musical. It's about a like Victorian guy that kills people and bakes them into pies. But like the, it's actually one of Sondheim's more narrative musicals. Like yeah. in that way, it's very normal. Like it's not like oh, we're doing abstract vignettes about the concept of being in relationships. It's like okay, here's the story. Here's the characters. They follow a plot. Um, and then this was. I feel like this, especially this like kind of post Chicago wave of movie musicals that was happening. Um, I I have many many conflicting thoughts on Sweeney Todd. I don't love it on the Burton adaptation. I don't love it, but I think there are many things that are very successful about it. And I can appreciate those, even if I think the film as a whole doesn't quite work. So that's sort of my base level. That's one of the things that we agree on, right? Okay. There are things about this that, that work. We just um, disagree on which it, things. Oh yeah. Well, I think it being a musical is one of those things, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think there is absolutely a way to make a great Sweeney Todd film adaptation and none of the things required to do that actually happen here. Um, with maybe the exception of the Pirelli sequence, which I think is actually pretty flawless. I think that that is a really good example of how to translate what works on the stage to the screen without having to um, do a whole lot of transformation, but it feels like it just feels right. Like that sequence feels right to me. Um, there are thing, there are filmmaking things that super work. There are performances I think that are good that don't that aren't sung very well. There are performances that are sung well that I think are just fine. Uh, it's just it's um, the biggest problem is that it fundamentally misses the point of a musical, which to me is a flaw that you cannot actually come back from. There's just no reason that Tim Burton Sweeney Todd is a musical other than that they wanted to make a movie musical. Yeah, there's no reason. It is interesting. That struck me on this rewatch. Like, it feels like, 
I don't know if I'd go as so far as to say it doesn't want to be a musical, but I think there's elements of the musical form that Burton is kind of embarrassed by. Like, notably, he cuts mm-hmm. all of the ensemble songs from the stage musical, including, like, the, the very famous Ballad of Sweeney Todd, which is the opening song in the stage musical that gets cut here, just plays as instrumental. Um, and then there's a couple other, like, smaller things. Like, on stage, there's a song where Lovett, Mrs. Lovett's serving people baked into pies secretly and everyone's loving it and they're all like singing this god that's good song and it's interesting because the movie includes that song and has love it singing but it cuts the ensemble singing so there's this overall sense that i don't know there's elements of being a musical that make burton very very uncomfortable and i think that sometimes leads to these kind of boring sequences that are just like people standing in a room as if they were just kind of having dialogue and there's not enough heightenedness to it on the other hand i think that there are sequences that are really good i really love the by the sea sequence which is like mrs lovett's fantasy sequence and i don't want to say that i want the whole movie to be fantasies a la chicago but i think that the energy of that sequence and the sort of like really funny really really funny like probably the funniest part of the movie like johnny depp as sweeney is just so deadpan and lovett is singing this like song about how happy their life is going to be and there's like a funny heightened visual style there that I think is kind of missing from the rest of the movie and doesn't necessarily need to come in fantasy sequences but I think as a result because Burton's kind of embarrassed by it being a musical he feels he can only play with that in a in a like explicit fantasy sequence when Mm -hmm. really he could play with that anytime he wanted to sure you know what's interesting is the other sequence that I have a sort of a new appreciation for after rewatching it is one of the other big Mrs. Lovett sequences Mm -hmm. which is the worst pies in London which first of all is just there are a million better versions of the worst pies in London but this version does feel like a version that could only exist in a movie because it is so focused on the details of these disgusting pies Um, And it turns them essentially into a rhythm section, which is something that also happens in the stage musical. But there it's just like Angela Lansbury smacks her hand on the table. We're meant to assume it's a bug. And here it's we see her like picking off moths and flicking them, smashing (laughs) the pouring and all of the it's just so grotesque. And it makes Helena Bottom Carter's performance. And she is not a great singer, Um, but technically it's a very accurate performance. performance of the song like musically speaking it it, that's a really hard song to sing and she sings it exactly right um in part because the music supervisor is paul geminaggi who is student sondheim's longtime collaborator um who worked on the original production of sweeney todd among many others um which is also why the score sounds so good but uh because the details are so grotesque this flat affectation that you're talking about that Depp employs in the by the sea sequence makes it all much grosser and funnier because she's so matter of fact about killing these bugs whereas the the most famous Mrs. Lovett Angela Lansbury is comically overselling how gross they are and it's much funnier but a lot less grotesque um so I and that's the only that's the thing you could only do in a film version you could never even if it was a teeny tiny intimate theater production Mm -hmm. you could never make it that gross on stage and I really appreciate that well and in terms of the grotesque at large this is also easily the most gruesome thing Burton's ever put into theaters. Yeah. We mentioned earlier he's only done a couple R-rated movies throughout his career. Last week I talked about Sleepy Hollow, which has some of the most bloodless decapitations I've ever seen in a movie. And now here, this is throats getting slit with almost operatic levels of 
just viscera spraying blood. Um, Depp spends most of the last 20 minutes of the film covered in blood head to toe. My favorite is the the absolutely horrifying sounds that happen when the bodies hit the pavement, Mm -hmm. which is, again, not a thing you could do in theater. You could have the sound, but you can't that, like bone crunching thing is just the way everyone's landing on the crown of their head because they're dead weight dropping yeah yeah i love all that how bloody it is and i think that that is a really nice distinction from the stage show which different versions will be different amounts of bloody but i think you just have more horror and realism in a film and i really love that about it like i love how far they lean into that stuff i really really love i mean spoiler alert but like mrs lovett's death i feel like is appropriately horrific and horrific in a way that you can only kind of have on a film in film um i actually don't and this is probably our biggest point of disagreement i don't really like anything about helena bottom carter in this film except for her final the final sequence leading up to her death and then her actual death i think is really really compelling um so i love how much they lean into all of that horror stuff i think that is some of the stuff i like best and the stuff that makes me, like, hesitant to just throw this adaptation away because there is stuff that I genuinely, like, really love more than I love in other movie musicals. And then there's this other stuff where I'm like, oh, I don't like this at all. Yeah, I just, I guess this is going back to my big problem, which is if you took out every song and just rewrote it all as dialogue, it would be a better movie. And Sweeney Todd is one of the greatest pieces of American music theater of all time. And it would be a better movie without the music. And that is maddening to me. Because it's just like, it's really hard. Almost nobody can sing it accurately. Some of them can't. Like I said, it's sort of stunning to me that Helena Bonham Carter actually manages to sing it technically well. um, Or technically accurately, I guess. Because she's just not a strong singer. Um, Sasha Baron Cohen is. Uh, and I think that the Pirelli sequence is good. I think that the kid who plays Toby is really good. I don't like this movie's interpretation of Toby. I don't like their Toby, and I don't like... Okay, let me also say, this movie, you know, I feel like as a critic, I try to just approach a movie on its level and appreciate what it's doing. I feel so close to the source material. It is very hard for me to just view this as a movie. Me too. Which I sometimes have with books, but like particularly with this. And I think it is different from a book because like a music, a stage musical is more like a movie than a book is like a movie. Mm-hmm. And so it is hard when you have that one-to-one comparison. And I don't really love this interpretation of Toby, which whatever, that's just a little detail that See, I interrupted I, you for. But. That's totally fine because I think part of the reason it works is that it is another thing that would be hard to do on stage, right? Like there are lots of chirpy little kid parts mm-hmm. in the world, um, but the the danger is increased because of his youth, which makes him a more unknown, uncontrollable quantity and makes all of the feelings that he has seem pure. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like the relationship with Mrs. Lovett is interesting. And, but mostly I just mean on a technical level, sure, yeah. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, the Pirelli sequence, part of what works is this kid and you see how hard he is trying to sell this thing. And this whole story, uh, Pirelli's story, This is story, like the rival right? yes. barber yeah. who's sort of taken over while Sweeney Todd was sent away, and Toby's his little assistant and, like, hype man. Yes. And you can see him winning the crowd over and starting to lose the crowd, and his frustration and um, despair because you find out that this is an incredibly abusive relationship. All of that comes through 
in a in a very clear and visceral way because of his age and because of the way that the camera can move through the audience, which is not a thing again that you could do in a musical, right? You could have like broadly watermelon, 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 and everybody is like <laughs> looking disgruntled, and it's not going to have the same impact as watching people sort of glance over their shoulder because they just heard Johnny Depp say a really shady thing about mm-hmm. Pirelli or about the elixir or any of that stuff. Um, and then Sasha Baron Cohen comes out and is performing a performance, which is a thing that's not always super easy to do. It is a person. He's playing a character who's playing a character. Um, and that can be n- really easy to overdo or undersell. And I think he does a really nice job of it. Um, and again, there are details that would just be hard to get across on stage. Uh, but there could have been no singing in either of those scenes. Mm-hmm. And I love that song. I think that's a really fun number from the show. And um, there could have been no singing in it, and it would have been more understandable. (laughs) Which is wild because, so again, I hadn't watched this movie myself since it came out in 2007. And in revisiting it, you know, I liked liked a lot of the aesthetic stuff that we'll talk about a little later in the show. There was a lot I admired about it. But by far my biggest takeaway was just how, like, some movie musicals, and I've noticed this is an especially pronounced tendency of modern movie musicals in particular, where the singing sounds very thin. Yeah. In a way that, yes. Oh my god, yeah. Not to hurl hurl Damien Chazelle's Lava Land (laughs) under the bus yet again, but it's a perfect example. Throw it under the bus. Yeah. Not even the whole movie, but just, like, the singing ability in particular. And then John Legend shows up and you're like, oh, thank God, someone is actually singing. (laughs) That's the thing. It doesn't doesn't sound like it has the kind of throat behind it that stage performance does, or even that a lot of the classic Hollywood musicals do. Well, it's also not how you sing in the shower. Right? Like, that's the other thing. It's like, you don't... The problem is people don't sing that way in real life when they're singing because they feel a certain way. You only sing that way because you're thinking about how people are going to hear it. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of a musical... uh, God, I'm just, like, woman-splaining music theater to everybody right now, but I don't care. Um, The whole point of a musical is that the song... Most musicals, not all musicals. The the song emerges because, in theory, there is an emotion too big to be summed up in speech. That's the whole point. So when something is sung all the way through, like Sweeney, it's supposed to be heightened. That is the whole point. Because the emotions are all so big. And that's that's opera, too, right? Like, it's all heightened. And that doesn't mean the performances have to be heightened, but the emotions are heightened. It's all at a peak. And La La Land doesn't do any of that and a lot of that doesn't happen here either and that is deeply frustrating so i will say we've been having this discussion for a quarter hour at this point and neither (laughs) of you has answered one key question yet is johnny depp a good singer in this no i think yes no that's our biggest i i don't think johnny depp is a stellar musical theater voice i do like the sound like i like listening to the quality of his voice in here in the way that you can like listening to like a rock artist who isn't you know gonna be performing opera and i like i mostly like his take on sweeney i think some things he does better than others i think his like i can get very (laughs) in the weeds here but like certain songs are better than others i think there's a big number called epiphany which is obviously sweeney todd having an epiphany um that i think he's really really bad in and Mm -hmm. is that's bad because that's the turning point of the entire story. Um, but in some of his like quieter moments, I really like his sort of like rock quality. I like listening to it. And I, I totally believe you that Helena is a technically proficient singer. I hate listening to her voice. And I think that the 
vocal style she has chosen is so at odds with the love it as written that it it's very like jarring for me to <laughs> even follow that part of the story like to me she's the performer that's most at odds with the character much more so than than Johnny Depp is I don't think I mean I would never have cast Helena Bottom Carter in this yeah. role right I think that it works in spite of and not because of mm-hmm. sometimes um, and mostly think it doesn't but okay so my issue with Johnny Depp's performance is um, that I also don't really have a problem with the way that his voice sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just because he can sing it doesn't sure. mean he should sing it. <laughs> Which right? is fair, yeah. It's just he's really badly cast. He's really badly cast in terms of the story that's being told because I think Depp works best when there's something at least a little playful. And Sweeney Todd is not yeah. playful, which is why the only number of his that really works for me is um, mm, A Little Priest. Which is playful, right? Where there's an idea and there's an energy behind it and they are not enjoying themselves necessarily, but there's there's wit and it's the characters who are exercising their wit and as a result, and he just sounds better in that song as a result, mm-hmm. I think. It's also that it's higher and he's singing a role he can't sing, which is why he goes in his terrible Cockney accent, there's a hole in the world like a great dark pit in the people of the world and how, and it's like, no, this is that's supposed to be notes. That's supposed to be musical notes. It makes me so sad. But I, I just, I think that, He's very, very miscast. I actually would have loved to see Johnny Depp play Pirelli. Mm-hmm. I would have loved to see him play Beatle. I like. I do not argue with the fact that Johnny Depp is in this movie. I think there's a way <laughs> he could have been in this movie and it could have worked. But the acting doesn't work and the singing doesn't work and none of it works. For, it's like all of his worst tendencies. He's got an opportunity to exercise pretty much all of them. And then it just doesn't even sound, I won't say good. It doesn't sound right. It mm-hmm. doesn't just doesn't work at all for me. Well, what do you think, Don- Dominic? Yeah, I never very curious. call you Dom or Dominic. If, what? <laughs> I just fine. It's okay. versatile. Um, what is your thoughts as someone that that doesn't have this connection to the source material? Like, what are your thoughts on these performances? So without the connection to the source material or really the, like, musical theater broadly beyond, like, my stage crew years in high school, I like it more than I don't, but with the caveat that, again, it's exactly where we began this whole conversation a, what I would characterize as a decent movie that had a crack at being great. Yeah. Because I think that, as a, again, as a visual artist, Burton is not a bad fit for this. It is just that aversion you've both pointed out to making a musical that gets in the way. Because one other thing, as especially as a consequence of that smallness you two were talking about earlier, a lot of this movie is just one-on-one conversations in a room two-on-one conversations in a room and for what is clearly lavish staging because among other things the set design in this is great at points yeah but costumes too for all of the expense very clearly being slathered into every frame on screen when it counts in terms of creating drama it feels very small yeah and it also one of the great things about Stephen Sondheim as an artist is that it's just there's layer after layer after layer after layer, even in the lighter stuff, right? Even in his slighter works, there's layer upon layer upon layer. And what's true of both Sweeney Todd and the Disney adaptation of Into the Woods is that it just is a pretty uninterested in any of those layers. It's telling the story on the surface. It yeah. often reveals 
the fact that it's missed the point based on the things that it chooses to omit. Um, and it just, and to me, part of the reason that Depp is such a failure to me in this film is that casting him, casting an actor with these sort of showboaty tendencies who really leans in too hard sometimes just erases, I, I mean, even on a plot level, it just, there's absolutely no way that people willingly go let that guy who looks that way, who behaves that way, <laughs> shave them. No yeah. one, no one goes to that creepy empty room so that he can put a straight razor to their neck. No one, no one. Fatal flaw in the movie. And in Sweeney Todd, he is definitely a creepy character, but he can turn it on he can change it and there's a, like a stoicism and here sometimes Depp is stoic and sometimes he's like glowering and then he'll just smile and the smile is creepy and you just don't buy it at all well there are there there have been times in Depp's own career I think a black mass from a few years ago is another good example of this where he's demonstrated he can do honest to god affectless madness in this really frightening way there are pieces of him as an actor that could have worked, but I would agree. I don't think he brings any of that to this in particular. But I'm actually going to use that point as a segue into our fourth movie, because if we're talking about Tim Burton movies with leading performances that straddle a line between effective and unconvincing because they're playing the back of the house, let's talk about Christoph Waltz and Big Eyes. <laughs> oh, God. What a performance. <laughs> hey, baby. Killer party. It's a happening. So where's your stuff? Oh, uh, we decided that this would just be Walter's show. Oh, we did? Why would we do that? Oh, because Walter is more established. Strange, you know, Walter doesn't really strike me as a cute, hungry kitten type. Speaking of movies with a fatal flaw based on what the filmmaker thinks is important. Yeah. Yeah, so Big Eyes is, again, the Keene story, specifically of Margaret Keene, who did, and it's interesting because like Ed Wood again, this is Burton making another biopic about a kitsch artist. Yeah, and, and I, I actually wouldn't, frustratingly, I would not call this the story of Margaret Keene. Yeah, I feel the same. Yeah, which is... But you're right to problem. describe it that way, because yes. that is ostensibly what it yeah. is And it's how it was marketed. But yeah. honestly, yeah. Let, let, let's explore that. Why, why does it not rate to both of you as the story of Margaret Keene? It's ten times more interested in Walter Keene. Yeah. That's so, his name, right? So Christoph Walter's character? That, so the setup is that she is painting these portraits of people with big eyes, which sometimes you're just like... Talk about something that Tim Burton is uniquely suited to direct. Like, yeah. no one loves small people with big eyes more <laughs> than Tim Burton. Especially if they're blonde. So she's the one that... Uh, there, there's been a lot of movies like The Wife, Colette, like these sort of like the wife does the actual work, but the husband is the sort of charismatic person. So he starts selling the work and then eventually starts taking credit for the work. Um, so it's sort of like Christoph Waltz is playing the super charismatic slash manipulative slash abusive husband. Um, and I totally agree with what you hinted at, Allison, that the movie... It's ostensibly about Margaret, but is so enraptured by Walter that it just keeps putting the focus back on him. And I think some of the big fish problem, it it and, and in a different way, because obviously this character is like horrific in a way that the dad of Big Fish is just kind of like a jerk sometimes, but he's not like a horrific, abusive person. Yeah. But I think similarly, the movie doesn't actually want to interrogate Walter's flaws. It like finds them funny, which when you're making a movie that's like at a certain point, like, about domestic abuse, it's, like, you don't want to be simultaneously, like, charmed 
by the horror of the situation. And I think he doesn't capture the horror of the evil side of Walter because he's so enamored with the like over the top charismatic side of Walter. Yeah. And the, and the over the top charismatic performance, yeah. because you know, I'm not sure it's always the best choice, but you can't deny that Christoph Waltz is incredibly watchable here. I just, it just doesn't. He is incredibly watchable, but I think if you look at Waltz, like Christoph Waltz as a performer is an incorrigible ham. That is not derogatory in any way. That is just some actor's lane. And he has two Oscars to show for being very good at it. Having said that, a lot of his best performances have come from working with filmmakers who know how to use that tendency Mm -hmm. in service of something the thing that makes him so great in Inglorious Bastards, I would argue, is not, you know, the smiling and the strange delivery. It's that ability to tease out something firing just under the surface of that that immediately becomes a lot more alarming, which makes him a perfect cast here for a movie that, at least on its face, wants to be a movie about gaslighting and mm-hmm. about the ways in which cunning men steal things from more talented women. But it, again, I would agree, it stops short if only because Amy Adams is so vulnerable and so appealing in this movie that seeing him as anything other than a monster is pretty difficult. Yeah, and it is, you know, I think that this is understandably, it's understandable why, why this is a problem and I think why it's often a problem in this type of movie. It's like the the history of it is that the guy was more engaging than the girl. It's not to say that or the the man was more engaging than the woman. Like, that is the basic setup of it. So you as a filmmaker have to get very creative to unearth the other side of that, which I think filmmakers are often lacking in the ability to do that. And I think this film in particular, as great as Amy Adams is, and I think the story is very empathetic to her, mm-hmm. and just watching this, like, I didn't really know anything about the Keens or this, you know, style of art even. So, like, just as, like, a biographical piece of history it was interesting to you know to watch to learn about i was engaged throughout but i think when it gets down to the like did burton find an interesting way to tell her story no he kind of got caught up in the same problem as the the world did where the guy is so over the top that you can't you know move away from him yeah it's the same problem of a lack of self-awareness in the film in a way that's very similar to Big Fish I think where there are obvious questions to be asked about the way the movie is being made by itself and they go unanswered it's strange too to look at this and because this is of all the outliers in Tim Burton's body of work this may be the movie that feels the least like him from minute to minute there are moments of it there are that he definitely has a ball with that the 50s design that he's been playing with since the early days of his career especially in the early parts of the movie but more and more as this goes on this avails itself as just kind of this two-hander based on a true story that he doesn't seem to get over that hump of like really bringing something extra to. Yeah, I think it's, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more when we're talking about the visual elements, but um, it's a shame that there isn't, and I wouldn't want it to be super heavy-handed, but that there isn't more of what we see in that sequence in the grocery store, because that... First, shockingly, is actually interested in Margaret's perspective, but um, and is also she sees she's like a fantasy sequence where she's imagining she sees everybody with their yeah. big eyes. Yeah. yeah, well, she's sort of like in a crisis, right? Um, and, and it's both interesting because of what it says about her character, and also because it then it feels like a Tim Burton movie. And I don't think that Tim Burton needs to be doing Tim Burton drag with every movie that he makes, but um, but I sort of wish that 
there'd been a little bit more exploration, if only because he's obviously interested in Margaret Keene's perspective as an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish that if he had explored more of why he is interested in that, then maybe we would have learned more about her as a character. And what's very strange to me about this movie is that all the pieces are right there, even more so than with our discussion of Sweeney Todd. All the, the, the very first line of the film is Danny Houston as the noncommittal narrator, which is a very confusing character throughout the very movie. Very confusing. Um, but Danny Houston narrating the fifties were a great time to live in. If you happen to be a man, it starts off hitting those notes. And then the movie just wanders further and further away from it until it ends in a courtroom standoff. That has to be one of the hokier things Burton's put to film. <laughs> I wish that had been funnier. It's, I wanted it to be funny. Cause Jesus, like that dude showing your ass, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. Him, him, him try, Walter Keane trying to fake a shoulder injury <laughs> as a last ditch gasp of desperation. Very funny, actually. But again, you know, this is Burton working in a traditional old Hollywood mold, like the the portrait of the artist mold specifically. But I don't that humanity we talked about with Ed Wood at the beginning of the discussion. I don't always get here in the same way. Well, if I want to be a real, I don't know dick about it um i margaret Keene is not a man mm-hmm. so so it she's is, the most interesting character in the movie and he's not interested it is interesting that they sort of have this narrator character which i think maybe they did just because it like that is a great opening line like the 50s were a great time if you were a man and it is probably more powerful for that one line to be coming from like a straight white man but it does feel telling that it's like okay we want to tell a movie about <laughs> the unexplored history of a woman what can be the framework? I know, like a male narrator and we'll focus on her husband. And it's like that <laughs> becomes telling in its own way, which I think, again, is a problem with just having a more passive protagonist, regardless of gender. That's always going to be a problem. But I think when you look at the rest of Burton's filmography, this does seem to be a tendency of like not being able to access the inner mind of women as well as he does yeah. men. And again, he gets so close because one of my favorite moments in this is the sequence in which the Italian buyer comes into the nightclub and her husband, in an absolute scumbag move, rolls out the carpet for her knowing she won't take a single step onto it so that he can swoop in. But there is this moment where you just watch her working through the entire progression of identifying herself as an artist in that way that is riveting for like 10 mm-hmm. seconds for 10 seconds it's actually getting at the what's horrifying on its face about the keen story which is like so many other modern stories like that were kind of we're doing it a lot with true crime right now in particular as a culture but there have been a lot of stories of reclaiming narratives about women that were shaped by the terrible men around them Lorena Bobbitt comes to mind, Monica Lewinsky for another. This is a story in very much that same business. And yet again, yeah, he's more interested in the idea, like, the mechanics of a charming charlatan than he is in any of the victims. Without ever even really exploring why he does it either, right? Like, if he wanted to make a Walter Keene movie, then he should have made a Walter Keene movie. Instead, he made a 
ostensible Margaret Keene movie and then accidentally spent most of his time on Walter Keene. Well, we can definitely keep these ideas in mind, too, as we move into the second half of our discussion, because if we're going to jump into talking about the visual, then I think Big Eyes is an interesting place to start. In the case of Big Eyes, what's really interesting in terms of the look is, again, as mentioned a little bit earlier in our conversation, it has some of those hallmarks of the mid-century modern look he loves, especially the house that they wind up in near the end of the film, which is one of the better pieces of set dressing as storytelling in it. But aside from that, it's weird how often indistinct so much of this movie is as, again, a Burton movie. It's I always think of Burton, like, my go-to thought is, like, desaturated goth. Which is funny because his films are so saturated. And even in something like Edward Scissorhands, he's working with this aesthetic of, like, the there is the desaturated goth. But then that's, you know, in comparison to basically the Big Eyes aesthetic, which is, like, very, very colorful. Almost heightened, I think, in, in Big Eyes it's more realistic. Um, just the aesthetics of the visuals, the costuming, and all that stuff. But still very, very saturated which I just, like, find pleasing to look at. Like, mm-hmm. just in the most basic level. It's like, yeah, this is a beautiful, candy-colored vision of, like, the 50s and 60s, and that's just, like, fun to watch. Yeah, the like, the worst Tim Burton movie would still probably be a pretty decent screensaver. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Sure. <laughs> I mean, we argued it's Dark Shadows, and there is some great-looking stuff going on in sure. that. Yeah. So. But yeah, it's it with Big Eyes, it's kind of peculiar because he seems to be trying to do something more straightforward than he's ever really tried, which again, we here at Filmography are not sitting here trying to deride artists stepping out of their comfort zone out of hand, but it's just the domestic courtroom drama in particular is such a weird fit for what Burton does as a filmmaker that even a lot of our plot grievances can kind of parallel to this visual issue in that... He he does he tries to untim Burton it, but he doesn't replace that with anything. Yeah, I think that's why, and I mentioned these already, but I think that's why the brief moments where we see other people and specifically their eyes, the way that Margaret Keene sees them, are so refreshing and so striking. Because it is heightened and because it's a, about perspective and about and it sums up what it is that she tries to explain when people talk to her about why she makes the things she does and um, which is what makes it such a shame that to Walter Keene, you know, it's just a chance to make money and and whether you like the artwork or not, it is art because that's it's coming from a, a very specific place, right? She is an artist. She's not a maker of posters. He's a maker of posters. And um, yeah, that's why those sequences really stick with me. And they happen to also be, I think, the most Burton-y. Well, and in that same way, there's an interesting connection between Big Eyes and Big Fish in that respect, beyond the names having, and <laughs> having the exact same number of letters in the mm-hmm. titles. But I think in terms of that heightened reality, they're both dealing in that, but Big Fish, for better and worse, throws both its arms around that. Can you imagine if Tim Burton had made Big Trouble in Little China and then that would have been his, his big trilogy? Or big, not that I, I would say, like I... never, ever, ever take big away from Penny Marshall, but wouldn't it be fun if, it, if there was I'm a Tim Burton for big him to do trilogy? A third big. I feel like he will. Like you can't do two bigs and not. I mean, there's one. Tiny Elephant with big ears. <laughs> yeah, he should have called Dumbo Big Ears and that would have completed <laughs> it would have the been trilogy. great. It would have been great. Yeah, maybe it was maybe working title, Big Ears. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I find the aesthetics of Big Fish 
I think it's very effective to juxtapose the sort of like I feel like in my memory it's like very blue, like the real world's very blue tinted, and then the sort of very sunny. warm, sunny fantasy story stuff. I do think, and this is maybe more like production design than cinematography, but like clearly there's there's sort of they're not always trying to be realistic with the fairy tale stuff. It sort of almost feels like a play at times, but there's sometimes where I feel like they push that too far. And I'm like missing a tactileness to that. Like it really, a lot of it really feels like it's filmed on a set in a way that could be cool. Like when I describe that, it sounds like it's cool, but feels not quite as intentional. And it, it I think it sort of robs it of its stakes a little bit. Um, yeah, so that I think of especially like the parts where Ewan's like wandering around the forest feel very stage bound to me in an uneffective way. Well, and I think because some of that is if it's a movie aggressively insisting on its boundless imagination at every turn, it's weird to then in turn be shown the seams of that and to be like availed and made aware of the limitations. I feel like, and this is also going into design and not cinematography, but I totally agree. And I think one of the saving graces of Big Fish of those story sequences is the costume design because the costumes, because that's Colleen Atwood who has four Oscars and is going to win more. And she's, and did all four of these movies. So she's Um, everywhere. She's very, very, very good at her job. And Colleen Atwood would never design a costume without thinking about whether or not anybody's ever worn it before, um, how it looks, how it feels and texture and all of that stuff. So I think in those sequences, you really like, I'm thinking about, his knapsack that he hands to Carl before he goes off to Spectre. And it just, you know, it's like, it's new. But Mm -hmm. you can tell that it's new because he's setting out on this adventure. And it's that kind of detail that I think is a little bit lacking from some other areas of the film. Burton's use of light, likewise, is always really interesting because big, Big Eyes particularly floods the screen with light. Almost to kind of a distracting level at times. That wedding in Hawaii. Yes. like... Every scene is, again, heavily saturated with light. In Big Fish, it's interesting because he's overdoing it, but I do think the handful of times when he then dials it back are a little more challenging and a little more interesting by association. And there are just some, like, beautiful images in in Big Fish, and I know we have, like, we'll get into our favorite ones, but just, like... The things he does with color, like that, the image of just like all the yellow flowers, like there's just some, for as much as there are seams and frustrations there, there are also some really, really beautiful images that I think just stand out more than other, like I don't necessarily think of one dominating image from big eyes, but I can think of a whole bunch from big fish and that, I don't know, is more successful in that sense. Yeah, if there's an image, other than the sequence we've, we've already talked about, if there's an image from big eyes that really sticks out to me, it's... Um, her scraping off the painting to yeah. see the name underneath, like that, that is really clear in my head. And also her sleeping on the floor underneath the mural, um, I think is also really compelling. Well, and I think, and that goes back too to Caroline's point about tactility, you know, like there, when he's, because I can distinctly think in the same way of her scraping off the name to reveal the other name underneath. And there's something very physical about that little detail, the way you watch her, like, scrape it away piece by piece so she doesn't ruin the proof she has. There's, again, there's a lot of little rich details in that one little note. Mm-hmm. There are actually, now that I'm thinking about it, in Big Eyes, there are some good details about, like, the art of painting that yeah. I think are very effective. And even one point where I feel like she mentioned something like, oh, this is 
or he's he's trying to sell something and he's like, oh, this is oil paints. And they're like, wait, I thought this was water-based. And like, which I don't really even have the frame of reference for all the reality of that. But it's like kind of fun to hear the characters talk in that way. And I think that particularly just watching Amy Adams paint is actually very, very compelling. And they do a good job of making the art of painting, which I think could sometimes be boring. And sometimes you get movies about paint painters where they just sort of like ignore that aspect. But actually her like sketching things out and painting stuff is very, very compelling. Well, and she even, she moves differently than he does when they're mm-hmm. doing that. And she moves differently based on what she's painting. Like I think the scene where she's experimenting with this new style so that she could finally have her name on something yeah. is so compelling because it's like, it's, it's tentative and then it's not furious, but... Um, seems to be coming from someplace deeper and it's it's all as though she's both dipping a toe in and like giving way to something in a way I think is super and I get all of that from her physical performance Amy Adams is so good in that movie she is really really good and the costuming's incredible I yeah. would like live in that yes world of costuming that yeah. that movie creates oh honestly like it does make the 50s look way nicer and more appealing than the American 1950s objectively <laughs> Sure, were. sure. And you know, just so I don't forget to say it later, I will say one more thing for Big Eyes in its favor. Uh, everybody should cast Kristen Ritter in things. Like, She's great. More Kristen Ritter. Really, really she great. She has, what, three scenes total? And there's nothing there. And they're all so good. She's very it's a good. a good era for her, too. Yeah. Which I don't think you would immediately think. Like, I think she's very modern. Mm-hmm. But she's sort of this, like, beatnik cool girl. I'm like, yes, this is where you were born to be. Give her all the jobs. Well, and then on the subject of, you know, painting and the otherwise painter Lee, I want to use that to jump over to Sweeney Todd because if there's one thing I really love about Tim Burton's take on Sweeney Todd, it is the look of it. Yeah, although that animated stuff I am not about. The animation doesn't do it for me, but... The animation doesn't, but it, if nothing else, it the one thing that really jumped out to me on reappraising Sweeney Todd was it took it takes the dark blue and gunmetal black aesthetic that is all the rage in action movies nowadays that we all complain is just this hideous palette assigned to every post Zack Snyder tentpole movie. He actually makes that aesthetically pleasing and does a lot of things with it throughout, which is kind of amazing. Just say I don't totally love the look of Sweeney Todd. Really? Okay. Really don't like the animation. They do these sort of like sweeping shots. Um, Like it's weird because like half of the movie is like super super stage bound or like two thirds of it, and it's like we're in a room, and then it's like okay, let's do this dramatic shot for like sweeping across London and looking at the rooftops. I think all of that is so murky and muddy and like gross looking. And sometimes I think that there's some beautiful images in it for sure, but like overall, it feels like. The aesthetic choice to make everything moody goth is, it's like leaning too far into the source material. And again, I talked about this before, but I think the reason I like the By the Sea sequence is because it's a juxtaposition Mm. with the material. And this feels like, yes, the point of Sweeney Todd is like the whole world is a big pile of shit, so just like (laughs) eat everybody and murder them. So to some (laughs) extent, it makes sense to, to depict the world as being terrible and it makes an effective juxtaposition for the flashbacks to, like, the warm and happy times in, in Sweeney's life. But it almost feels like it's like putting a hat on a hat. It's like, here's a dark world. Every character is a literal goth. Like, every like Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter looked like they just walked out of, like, a Hot Topic makeover to the <laughs> extreme. 
So both of them, and it's not like, oh, let's compare and contrast these two characters. It's like, let's make both of them extreme goth. Let's make everything extreme goth. Let's make the visuals of the whole world extreme goth. And each of those individually, I feel like I could like, but all together, it feels like muddy to me. And then add in the animation thing, and I'm like, there's nothing, like nothing is catching my eye because it's all the same palette. Yeah, I think... That's also part of why I like that Pirelli sequence so much, mm-hmm. is because there's color and there's energy, and certainly, absolutely, the by the sea sequences, the flashback sequences. Um, but I also think the same can be said of Judge Turpin's house and the yeah. way that Alan Rickman is costumed, um, the way that Joanna is shot. All of that stuff feels it's still extremely dark, it still feels like it's part of that world, but it's something other than the very white skin, the very dark very like threadbare clothing the like oppressive grayness that you get in a lot of the Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett sequences um to say nothing of the fact that nobody would ever go into a business that looks like that again I maintain fundamental flaw no one would ever maybe it's maybe it's not that I don't like it in I think there's just too much of it Mm -hmm. like I like it and and this is how I feel about this the or here's for a totally other example. Like, you know how in Les Mis, like, the, they do the sequence that's, like, the one take close-up of Anne Hathaway's face singing that song. And it's so, so effective. And then they use that exact same thing for five other songs. Yep. And by the end, you're like, well, I've lost the power of the original thing. This is kind of how I feel about Sweeney. Like, they do a couple s- songs that are just in a room. And I find them very, very effective. And then they do that so much that I'm like, you've lost your power. And the same thing with the visuals. It's like, let's do this really pale skin blue tint thing which is really really effective for certain things but then it just becomes oppressive mm-hmm. and like washes out my enjoyment of the moments that are really strong well and then by the time that you get to the sequence in the basement for lack of a better term like the sewer yeah. whatever it is with the furnace you've seen so many mostly empty oppressively gray deeply menacing spaces that this one is just another, another in the series one, yeah. that's a really good point too because i was having a hard time so the ending felt abrupt to me. Again, as someone who hadn't watched it in a lot of years and as someone who isn't intimately familiar with the show, the movie doesn't feel like it ends so much as halts. Yeah. And I think you just kind of hit the nail on the head as to why. Well, the other reason that happens is that, again, because Tim Burton is not always super interested in characters, <laughs> um, they he glosses over the whole point of the story, which is that his quest for revenge is so overpowering that it drives him to destroy the very thing that he wanted to um, fight for, right? Like, he very nearly kills his... Spoilers. Very nearly kills his daughter, actually kills his wife, who he didn't know was alive, but because he's indiscriminately killing in pursuit of something that he has completely lost sight of because it's it no longer... It's just about the guy. It's not about the reason. So, and that's the he's the tragic figure and instead it's like no London is terrible the movie um which is just uh boring and some of that kind of falls at the feet you know like thinking back because I was a huge Tim Burton fan growing up I remember right around Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and then Sweeney Todd following it two years later this was around the period in Burton's career where the dialogue about is Tim Burton becoming a parody of Tim Burton? Yeah. This was around the time that started beginning in earnest. Because I don't feel like... An, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was a hit, and we'll get to that in next week's episode. But after that, it sort of empowered him to do something that was, you know, 
for lack of better phrasing, a little more facile, which is why I feel like we're arguing here. Yeah. I think that in the Sweeney Todd source material, there's a level of irony and humor. Mm-hmm. And because it, it ends, like, it's interesting that the movie ends so abruptly because in the stage show, there is a final ballad. They, they sing the ballad of Sweeney Todd at the end. And the whole thing is sort of structured, like, more abstract we're going to tell you the tale of this, you know, guy. And, and I do understand the argument for cutting that, and I don't even necessarily hate it. But I think in cutting that and in cutting some of the irony, the irony of Sweeney becoming a tragic figure and just telling it as a very straightforward story, it's like, again, you're losing the levels, as you talked about before, Allison. Like, the there's nuance and levels here. And again, I think that ties in with the visuals. It's like, let's do all of this in the most, let's make all the most obvious choices. Everyone's a goth, everything's dark everything's bad and like there could be so many more levels there and I don't want to I don't want to like undersell or like oversell this too and say like none of it looks good because there are like I can think of shots that are very very beautiful and we were talking off mic about like the sequence where um they do some really effective stuff where where you think that Sweeney's going to to slit Judge Turpin's throat but instead he just genuinely goes to shave him like I think Burton's very good at visually creating the tension of the um the razor and each time it's like going near a throat mm-hmm. and there's a couple, there's a lot of really bloody scenes as we talked about, but there's a lot of fake out scenes where you think it's going to be a, a throat slit and it's not. And I think he's very, very effective at building that tension. So I don't want to say like none of it's successful, but when I think of it, I think of this movie more akin to the Alice movies that I think are very murky and CGI heavy and they did have the same cinematographer. And I feel like there is this like leaning into that stuff in a way that I don't find effective. Yeah, And then on the other end of that, if we're talking about parts of Sweeney Todd being kind of indistinguishable and murky, we can then go to the flip side of the coin, which is Ed Wood, one of the more richly visualized modern black and white movies. Because the thing I love about Ed Wood is that, you know, getting into like what makes black and white photography great is a whole other much longer and in-depth conversation. But a lot of modern black and white movies don't understand how to use light in that context or at least aren't interested in using it in the same way that a lot of really classic films did. Mm-hmm. Burton in Ed Wood understands perfectly how to utilize black and white light, if that tracks. He knows how to use it to fill a scene, to create darker blacks by robbing certain scenes of it. All of the scenes in Lugosi's home jump out to me because they're just completely washed of color and seemingly any kind of life in a way nothing else in the movie is. It's a stunning film to look at. And it's, you know, I think there's been a decent amount of movies that have tried to do this. Let's replicate an old feeling of an old black and white movie. Like, it's not that uncommon of a thing. And I'm not sure any any other movie does it as effectively as Ed Wood. Like, watching Ed Wood, it it feels like a movie made in this era, which is, it's like almost hard to put your finger on why. And obviously it's a combination of cinematography and editing and performance style and all of that stuff. But like, it feels like that in a way that so many other things try to and almost get there. But this is like, oh no. Like even compared to something like The Artist, which is sort of similarly trying to do this homage thing. But I don't think you watch The Artist and you're not necessarily like, the green of it doesn't feel like you're watching those movies. And something about Ed Wood, like whatever that ephemeral... You know, all these things coming together. I just think it's so, so effective and so, like, beautiful to watch. I've got two that I think achieve something similar but in very different ways. And I I think that they are similarly stunning to look at. And they were our Cold War, which came out Mm -hmm. 
in 2018. Streaming on Amazon Prime right now, I believe. Ooh-hoo, check it out. Um, when you are ready to be very sad. <laughs> I was going to say, that's not just like... It's not like a light recommendation. Cold War is one of my favorite films last year, but yeah, that is not leisure a, viewing. Yeah. Not for not for kicks. Um, watch, I don't know, The Good Place for kicks. And then when you're ready to feel some sad feelings, Cold War. Uh, and the other is Good Night and Good Luck, which mm-hmm. I think similarly specifically uses the texture of the film to contribute to the way the story is told. Like smoke-filled rooms and cameras everywhere and all of that stuff. It feels like it's a, so we're in a sort of similar conversation with the way the film is made, as opposed to the artist, which just feels like pastiche. Yeah, or more. Yeah, like Ed Wood doesn't feel like a gimmick, and it no. could so easily feel like a gimmick. It just feels so genuine and heartfelt, and that comes through in the look of the entire thing. Well, and it's kind of amazing that even in a black and white context, when they do things like go to the suburbs or to the movie premieres, Mm -hmm. like the way that he has those Burton-esque contrasts of light and dark, he even manages to articulate those within the space of a black and white movie. You know what I think is amazing? That sweater, you know it's pink. (laughs) You know it's pink. How do I know that sweater is pink? I just know it's pink. That's really cool. (laughs) Yeah, like, it's. Am I wrong? That's a well, pink sweater. It's true. I mean, and this comes down to to give Colleen Atwood more credit. Like that's a whole, and the production designers as well. That's a whole other art to figure out how to choose clothing and material for black and white photography as opposed yes. to color photography, and like the amount that they're able to do that. And and it is true. Like when you think, when I mentally think of the movie, like I'm envisioning a lot of the scenes in color almost. Yeah. Because they're so effective at communicating that, even in the black and white form. Mm-hmm. Well, before we move on from the discussion of sight of the visual, as always, we do the lasting image, your favorite single image from any of these four movies. And in that spirit, I will kick us off because I want to jump back. I mean, we're going to stay in Ed Wood, at least for me, because the image at the very end of Ed Wood sprinting out of the theater with Patricia Arquette hand in hand to his now sodden car is there's something so sublime because just behind them you're watching all the people all the others file out of plan nine from outer space and they're all clearly having these furtive conversations this is the beginning of edward's reputation as the worst filmmaker of all time apparently this is the genesis moment and yet you have these two kids one who's not really a character, the other who has been accepted unconditionally by the person he loves in this moment. And I just, I find it really resonant and pretty. And Mm -hmm. I think it's a good encapsulation of what's sweet and pure about that movie at its best. Mm -hmm. It's so funny. That was going to be mine as well. I really, really love that sequence. And particularly, he gets on one knee at one point, right? Like the whole, and and it's not even the cinematography there. It's just like, well, it is that in addition to like the way it's staged and all that stuff. I also think anytime he's in the Angora outfit, it's just like, and they play around with it. Like sometimes it feels like he emerges in that outfit and it's like a big moment. And sometimes it's like, oh, he's just wearing that today and like it's fine. And sort of the way that they very smartly and I think sensitively capture that. And then the other moment that just stands out is like when he's doing, when Ed is doing the sort of like dance sequence with the like veil over his face and then pulls back and he, because also Edward has no front teeth. And so then he's like also not wearing his teeth. And it's just so bizarre. Like it's such a bizarre thing to include, but it is again, so sweet in its presentation. It's like, yeah, this is just how they're celebrating like at, after their cast party or whatever. So, I mean, this is one of those movies where you could almost 
like literally every frame of painting. Like you really could freeze any moment in this movie and I think have just a beautiful image. Mine is also an Angora moment and it's specifically, and I was able to find it on One Perfect Shot's Twitter account, which thanks Fittingly, guys. Yeah. Not, a, not always my cup of tea, but in this case, very useful. Um, the composition of the shot is just incredible. You've got a group of technicians working on the movie standing behind him. And then Depp is totally backlit. But because he's backlit, you can see the fuzz of the sweater. So you can't see his face at all. You can just tell that he's holding onto the sweater. And the light is cresting over his shoulders. And the positioning of his body, you can tell that he is just wrapped by what he's watching. It's an incredible shot. Just incredible. Oh, also, there's that moment where he's hanging out with Bella Lugosi... Also, sidebar, Bella is such a beautiful name. More yeah. people should name their children Bella. It's beautiful. Um, <laughs> they're watching TV, and he goes to do drugs. And you see that he like pulls the curtain back. And again, it's very heightened and showy. It's not like this is a subtle thing. But it's a, totally in that style of like the 1950s it's a perfect. It's a perfect nod to the monster movies of yore yeah. in a context that makes it really ache. Yeah. Like that, for some reason, just like... Hearing him do morphine and, like, drop the needle on the floor even, like, all of it is kind of harrowing. It is, and then it switches into, like, a comedic scene where he's like, children, I love children, it is Halloween! And it's, like, becomes fun. Like, there's so much encapsulated in that whole sequence. Uh, Yeah, that's another thing that comes to mind. Well, and Allison, I love your point, too, because, you know, one of the things I adore about Ed Wood is how so much of the photography, especially around Ed in particular, seems to have this halo this almost kind of like divine reverence mm-hmm. for everybody in the world. And again, it's just this really sweet, benevolent way to portray the Hollywood 1950s, which were neither of those things. What a good movie. Also, should we talk about the Orson Welles scene? I realize we didn't mention that. That happens. He means Orson Welles. <laughs> the weirdest thing, before we jump into, actually, you know what? Let's jump into sound because okay. this, you know, mostly we're going to talk about score in a minute, but one of the most interesting things to me about Ed Wood is that apparently Vincent D'Onofrio, who plays Wells, does not deliver the dialogue you hear in huh. the film because Burton wasn't crazy about his performance and apparently dubbed him. Hmm. It's not, the voice sounds good, I think, for as much as, you know, there's always that Uncanny Valley thing. of Yeah. You know how Orson Welles sounds, right. so it's always going to be a little weird. Yeah. Yeah. But that is very interesting, yeah. It's a fun sequence. I mean, it fits well within the heightened thing. And I think they do. It wasn't something I picked up on, that the sound was off. And it doesn't seem off, which is part of it. And in a weird way, too, it feels like the kind of piecemeal film craft that sure. Burton is paying homage to, yeah. ironically yeah. enough. So Ed Wood is actually scored by Howard Shore. This is one of the only Burton movies, and definitely the only one from his classic era, that wasn't scored by Danny Elfman. And it's very interesting because what Shore does instead is kind of Elfman-esque at times, but also, like, almost more Baroque. I keep thinking of the way that, for a bunch of Lugosi sequences, he returns to... um, Tchaikovsky's Act Two theme from um, Swan Lake as a recurrent motif as just kind of this elegy for a walking legend. And I mean, in one sense, I can't ever not think of Black Swan when I hear that ever again for all the rest of my life. But in another, it forms this really interesting through line for the movie where it's reverent to the history, but it's reverent to the history of a Hollywood that Ed Wood was not necessarily a part of. It feels grand in a way he wasn't. 
my main takeaway from having been on this podcast a couple times now is that I don't actively pay attention to score. Like, whatever whatever my film-watching things are, like, unless it's a big, bombastic thing, it just washes over me. It's, like, a very hard thing for me to notice. So my sound contribution will be that I like the scene where they're filming and Edward says, sound? And they're like, we don't have sound. And he's like, great, don't worry about it. In a meta sense, I enjoy the acknowledgement of film sound and as it ties into my complete inability to have things to say on a film score. That's where I'm at with oh, that one. Sorry. I, yeah, I, I, I think that's a, that's a, <laughs> I'm sure it's lovely a great observation. Score. I really like Howard Shore's work on Lord of the Rings, so I'm sure it's great here. Well, and then in jumping over to Sweeney Todd, we go from a score that is, you know, drawing on the classics to a score that is a classic. Yeah, one of the greats. This yeah. score I noticed. This one I was <laughs> this score. To. <laughs> this score, in fact, is pretty hard to not notice it because be it is shouting at you much of the time in a really appealing way. Yeah, it's um, intentionally bombastic. I, I, it, gothic in a way that we don't usually mean when we talk about Burton, right? Like it's um, it's like Jacobean in its scope and and like very and Wagnerian in its musical reach right like it's very over the top uh, and when you listen to the score in a cast recording I which I highly recommend the original Broadway cast is Lynn Carew and Angela Lansbury or the 2005 revival which My is preferred. also excellent Michael Cerveris and Patti Lepone and Donalyn Champlin um I think that uh, you will find new things to appreciate. Um, but part of the reason it sounds so good is, again, because it's a longtime Sondheim collaborator who knows that score, into, every Sondheim score intimately. But that one, I think, particularly intimately. Well, and it seems to pop in the movie in this way where, I mean, if we're going to talk about Sweeney Todd as a musical that's kind of weird about actually being a musical at points... It never feels more like a musical than when that score just comes barreling through. Well, they're sort of using the orchestration in place of the chorus. Um, so there, there are no of these. There are none of these ensemble songs where you have lots of voices singing, and instead, it's like the orchestration is doing the work of that, which is very effective. But I still just wish that they had had an ensemble. Do you guys have a favorite song from Sweeney Todd? From the specifically the movie version. Oh. I'll say I really like it's not a song that I like at all in the show actually but the it's called My Friends and it's where Sweeney first gets love it gives him his razors back and he's just like singing a ballad to his razors and she's kind of singing a ballad to him and I don't I find that kind of boring like I always skip it on the cast recording but I actually really really like the way it's staged and the way it sounds I like I think that that song is well suited to Depp's voice and I think it's beautifully shot and I was like oh good job like this movie this was most of the, I've spent most of the movie saying, oh, I like this other version better, this other version better. But that was one where I was like, oh, I actually like the movie version of this a lot. I don't think I have one where that's the case. Okay, fair um, enough. But I really enjoy, and I think it's just because it's actually in depth's range. I, I really enjoy A Little Priest. Um both because of the, the way that it's sung makes it sound like they're plotting this at a place where other people could hear them, which mm -hmm. adds a nice level of tension. Um, but he actually sounds like he could sing it, which is a nice change, and it's funny, and I love that song in general. Um, but like I said, I also like uh, the Pirelli sequence. I think that, um, that that's an interestingly theatrical approach, and Sacha Baron Cohen is not always my cup of tea, but he's pretty good as Pirelli. Yeah. 
And for me, I, I also really like the Pirelli sequence. And I will say, like, I've seen, obviously, I've seen better versions of the worst pies in London. Um, Allison herself sent me the Angela Lansbury version <laughs> for one. So good. But I do, I really like the movie rendition of it. And I will say, if nothing else, it's after rewatching the movie a few days back, it's the one that has stayed lodged in my brain ever since. Yeah, well, that's, Caroline, would you say that that's the most famous song from the show? Worst Pies in London? Yeah. No, not at all. Really? So? Yes. Yeah. I don't really. What uh, would to be, be honest, more so? I don't have a sense. I don't know. Ballad of Sweeney Todd? Uh, Little Priest? No, I don't think a Little Priest. No? Um, I think. I think. I don't even think I have a strong argument here. I think I maybe just don't have a sense of. Ballad it's cultural of Sweeney Todd legacy. is certainly the easiest to parody. Um, but I think Worst Pies in London has the advantage of being like a cabaret song. Sure, sure, sure. You know, people yeah, do you can it, take it in isolation. out of context. Yeah. Um, and it's also just so distinctive. Like the yeah. writing is so good that even when it's not performed all that well, um, it just it like holds its own because it, the writing is so funny. But good, no, the worst guys in London. And there's and, and it's also one yeah. of my favorite. I'm so sorry to interrupt, but one of my favorite punchlines in all of music theater, which is it's enough to make you sick. And I'm telling you, them pussy cats is yeah, quick. Yeah, I really like that one it's too. It's so. F- it's just such a good. And it's Helena such a good actually, playoff. she does. I don't really like her performance of that song, but she sells that line very yeah. well. Well, because she underplays it, whereas Lansbury, yeah. who I love, and Patty Lapone both like lean into it really hard, understandably. But her, it's just like both of these things are true. It's great. Well, it's funny because if we're talking about all these memorable songs, we can jump over to the other end of that spectrum, which are our weekly dose of Danny Elfman comes in the form of his work on Biggs, Fish, and (laughs) Eyes. And in both cases, to your earlier point, Caroline, now these are scores that I'm not entirely retaining. Big Mm -hmm. Fish fares better, I would argue, because there are some... There are some of the swells and some of the plinking string sounds that he tends to do really, really well at his best, but it's not overall one of his Burton scores that lingers. And then Big Eyes is the rare time where I find myself agreeing with you, where I I can't I can't really recall much mm-hmm. of it. You know what's funny is I I obviously rewatched that recently, but also was writing about it, so I was thinking a lot about all of the elements and. Um, I remember it pretty well because I remember thinking, well, this one's not Danny Elfman. I wonder who it is. Mm. And then looking it up and it was Danny Elfman. I thought maybe it was like Thomas Newman, but it's just, it just doesn't sound like a Danny Elfman score to me. It's a real like eerie quality to it, I feel like, which is actually probably, I think the score is probably more effective at getting to that sense of menace that is often missing from the portrayal of Walter Keane. Like, the score captures the menace better than the film itself does, yeah. actually. Which is, yeah. like, a nice compliment to mm-hmm. probably a flaw of the film. And maybe I'll just say a Big Fish. I do think there, there's, like, a romanticism to the score that works well, and this ties into imagery as well, but, like, there's a beautiful sequence where the, like, time freezes sequence with where Ewan McGregor sees the love of his life, that he doesn't know anything about her personality ever at any point in the course of the film. But that <laughs> aside, time stops, and he's literally, like, moving in slow motion and, um, like, moving popcorn out of the way. It's a beautiful image. To be honest, I'm remembering the image more than the music, but I do feel like just in general the music gives that, like, complementary romanticism to the film. And it, probably in the big climactic sequence of the, like, racing racing the dad to the pond sort of fantasy sequence. I feel like there's a good drive that's that's created there, both from Crowder's performance and I think from the score again. I don't retain it that well, but I'm imagining that it was effective there. 
Yeah, I also, I don't really remember much of the music from Big Fish, but it, it's interesting that in trying to remember the music, I'm remembering even more of the imagery, which I think is probably the mark of a good score, right? Like, sometimes the mark of a good score is it sneaks in and you don't even notice it because it's doing such a good job. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, it would be nice to sort of remember. So. <laughs> I'm also a little thrown off because there is actually a Big Fish musical adaptation oh, that was sure. made after the movie, and I'm remembering a lot of those songs, which were obviously not in the score itself. Um, so yeah, if you, if you after you check out the Sweeney Todd cast recordings, you can go check out <laughs> the Big Fish cast recording based on this movie. If you have uh, any- and then if you really want to, you can check out the cast recording for Waitress the Musical, which does what Big Eyes tries to do much better. Mm, good call. I, I am very glad to have you two here today, <laughs> and I mean that because we came for the discussion of Tim Burton, and we stayed at length for the thoughtful dialogue on the subject of musical theater. Anytime. <laughs> Anytime. I am <laughs> extremely grateful to the two of you for joining me. I also want to thank Kat Blackard and Michael Rothman for all the continued support at Consequence Podcast Network. You can stay tuned to our Facebook page, Filmography Podcast, for all announcements. Next week, we will have our third episode on the whimsy of Tim Burton, and that's where we're going to be talking about some of those movies we've been elusively mocking for the last couple episodes, (laughs) so be sure to tune in for that one. You can find me on Twitter intermittently at DSuzanneMayer. You can also find all of my work at Consequences Sound. Where can the goodly people of the internet find you two? I'm on Twitter fairly frequently at Caroline Sita. I am also on Twitter with some frequency at Allison Shue. And uh, yeah, I think that's the best place. And find us on the Consequence of Sound AV Club and elsewhere. And elsewhere. (laughs) And elsewhere. Um, This is not the only Consequence Podcast Network show you can enjoy. We also have such programming as The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. Halloweenies, which is currently in its Nightmare on Elm Street series. This Must Be the Gig, Lior Phillips' music interview podcast, and Kyle Meredith with. As always, you can also leave us a review on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Podchaser, or wherever else you procure your fine podcasts. Filmography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcasts at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded, produced, and engineered in Chicago, Illinois by me, Dominic Suzanne Mayer. Thank you for listening, and we will see you all next week. Consequence Podcast Network. I was wearing the wrong foundation shade for years, and no one told me. Thanks, guys. Then I discovered Il Maquillage, the bold new beauty brand using AI to shade match. Their best-selling Woke Up Like This foundation has 50,000 five-star reviews and is a total game-changer for my glow-up. Plus, it's cruelty-free. You can even try before you buy at home for 14 days, risk-free. Take the quiz and get your shade of flawless at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz.